If you would, I would invite you, this is, uh, I'm going to throw you for a loop here, I'm actually going to invite you to turn to Psalm 19, to Psalm 19. I told you that I'd uh, be preaching through Acts, and this past week, I, uh, at the beginning of the week, started to prepare a sermon, um, but then as the week drew on, my commitments with the Church Planning Network and with Ascension, uh, those sort of ballooned. And the, the time that I thought I would have to uh, write that sermon, um, that sort of uh, got encroached upon. And so uh, I had to pull an audible here. And so um, here we are looking at Psalm 19 this morning. Uh, but um, we give thanks that whenever we open God's Word, He speaks to us. And so, uh, and that's actually what we're going to be considering this morning through this psalm. And to whet your appetite a bit, before I read the text, C.S. Lewis wrote, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And I hope that after this morning we'll have something of the same opinion about this text. So, Psalm 19, hear now the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Psalm 19 is about the revelation of God. It's about how God makes himself known to us. A lot of people are of the opinion that there is no compelling evidence for God's existence and that the best we can be is agnostic. Maybe there's a God, maybe not. Well, what we're going to see from God's Word this morning is that God does, in fact, show Himself to us. And actually, He does so in a way that's unmistakable. No one, the Bible says, can say that they have not encountered clear evidence for God's existence. And the reason is because God is continually speaking. 
He's not in hiding, but actually he's on a loudspeaker that reaches across the globe. And he speaks not only a universal word to all people, but he also speaks a particular word. A word wherein he invites us to know him in clear and personal terms and to have friendship with him. And in both of these words, God is speaking in the present tense. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks today. And that's the big idea that I want us to unpack this morning. And we're going to unfold it in three parts. God speaks through the material world. God speaks through the Scriptures. And then thirdly, His speaking leads us to Christ. That's the outline. And so first, God speaks today through the material world. Our psalm begins with these words, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And in a word, the visible heavens are telling us something about God. And in particular, they're telling us about God's glory. In Hebrew, the word for glory here is kavod. And it conveys the idea of power and authority. And when it's used of God, it speaks of His absolute power and authority because He created all things and rules over all things. And that's, in fact, what it means for God to be God. He's not a part of His creation, bound by space and time like us, because He's infinitely greater than the material world. And so He can uphold it. And this is why the objection that if God were real, then we'd be able to see him. I had a coworker in my last uh, job working gutters who said, hey, look, you know, if God's real, we should be able to pull up his Facebook profile, right? Like, where's his social media? Why can't we just see him? Why doesn't he show up? Well, that objection doesn't actually hold water. It's like looking at a beautiful painting and saying, well, if there's really an artist, I should be able to see him in this painting, And of course, that's nonsense. That's silly. The painting is 2D and the artist is 3D. He's of a whole other order. And it's silly to think that he could be contained within the paint and canvas. And it's the same with God. He is the Creator. He's not a part of the thing that He makes. Yet this is precisely why the heavens declare to us who God is, something of His glory. It's because whoever made the heavens is obviously far greater than the heavens. And so the heavens proclaim that there is a God of glory and power and majesty. That's the message. That's the content of the proclamation. And then this proclamation is said to be a couple of things. Firstly, in verse 2, it's unceasing. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The proclamation never ends. Secondly, it's inescapable. In verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Right? You can plug your ears at a rock concert, but you're still going to hear the music. And this point is continued in verse 4. Their voice, that is the voice of the heavens, goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Again, there's no escaping this proclamation. And as an illustration of all this, David turns to consider the sun in verses 5 and 6. The sun emerges from the horizon. 
It rides with joy like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and it runs its course across the sky like a strong man. In Hebrew, a gibor, a warrior who loves to flex his muscles. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And here's the point at the end of verse 6. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. You can run, but you can't hide. No one escapes the sun and no one escapes the undeniable evidence for the glory and majesty of God in the world around us. Now perhaps by this point a question has arisen in your minds. And that is, if creation really has made it so obvious that there is a God, then why are there still so many skeptics in the world? Why do so many people not see it? What's with all the atheists and the agnostics? And this was Bertrand Russell's objection. He said, not enough evidence. Right? If there is a God, shouldn't it be more obvious to us? The biblical answer to this objection is that the problem isn't with the evidence, but it's that it's with our hearts. Man has a heart problem. And this is what we see in that familiar Romans 1 passage, that all people, Paul writes, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And how do they suppress it? For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, that is what is conveyed by our word kavod, by the word glory in Psalm 19, His power and nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And Paul goes on to explain that instead of worshiping God, we've all turned to worship ourselves and other things. And this is what we see in the dominant worldviews of our day. The secular worldview, materialism, simply denies that there is a God. And so all that's left to live for is this material world and whatever it can offer us. On the other hand, spiritualism and self-made religion, it sees God and the world as intermingled. The world is simply the arena of God's self-exploration and self-realization. And on both of these views then, what we're left with is that there is nothing greater than this world with the here and now. Either because it's all there is, there is no God, or because the divine and this world are really one and the same. This world and we ourselves become all that's left to live for and to worship. And so turning inward and self-exaltation, that's what the denial of God leads to. On the Bible's view, however, there is something much greater. And all of us have moments and experiences in which we sense that to be the case. Whether it's beholding a breathtaking sunset, or listening to the music of Mozart, or Bach, or choose some other uh, composer that you like, or musician that you like, or fill in the blank with whatever makes you feel lost in wonder. In those moments, that feeling that there is something greater, it's not an illusion. It's not a trick of evolution somehow there to help us survive. Rather, just as a Made in Japan sticker tells you that, hey, this thing is probably pretty well made, well, the earth has a big Made by God sticker on it. The beauty and majesty of the world reflect 
God's beauty and majesty because He made all things. So this psalm encourages us in these first six verses to do a couple things. Firstly, if you're here this morning and you're not sure about God, you're exploring and considering maybe there is a God and maybe Jesus is His Son, and so you found yourself in this room to explore that question, consider what the visible world has to say. If you find it to be beautiful and awe-inspiring, then consider that perhaps there is a glorious Creator who fashioned it and gave it meaning. Second, for those of us who are Christians, let creation be for you a source of joy and thanksgiving and worship. As Calvin wrote, wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of His glory. What is said of the heavens is true by extension of all of God's creation. Holy, holy is the, whole, is, is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory, the angels proclaim. So don't be afraid to enjoy God's creation and to worship Him for it. God means for His creation to be for us an avenue of worship and of seeing His worth and beauty. And as we delight in it, we're actually given a hunger to know Him more intimately and personally. And that brings us to our second point this morning, which is this. God speaks today through the Scriptures. We see that God speaks through creation. That's the first point. And now God speaks today through the Scriptures. What I want us to see from this psalm is that God's Word, the Bible, is not just a dusty old artifact, but it's a living Word. Just as the heavens declare God's glory day to day and night to night, so too the written Word is a mouthpiece by which God continues to speak to us day by day. He speaks to us corporately in this hour, but also individually, really, and personally whenever we open His Word. And to put the point, the point more bluntly, whenever and wherever we encounter God's Word, we encounter God Himself speaking to us. Now stay with me because I realize this second point doesn't immediately jump off the page. And so my aim as we look at verses 7 to 11 is to point out the intimate connection we see between God and His Word. In verse 7, we're introduced with a sudden transition. David has been talking about the heavens and the sun, and then seemingly out of the blue, the law of the Lord is perfect. David turns from considering creation to considering God's Word. And it might seem to us like a violent gear shift, but the obvious connection is that both creation and God's words are mediums through which God reveals Himself and speaks to humanity. God's world demonstrates that there is a God who created all things. And God's word tells us more fully who that God is and how it is that we can have a relationship with him. And so it's the second medium which David now considers. The law of the Lord. And he adds five other titles. He says the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. And commentators are agreed these aren't separate items, but David uses these terms synonymously to draw out the varied 
beauty of God's law, the law of the Lord. And by this term, David would have had the Mosaic law in mind. But broadly speaking, and by way of extension, what is said here about the Mosaic law is, of course, true of all of God's word. The Apostle Paul makes this very point in his letter to Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. So then what about this inseparable tie between God and his word? And there's three things here that I want to point out. First of all, God is the source. He is the author. Though Moses would have physically penned the words of scripture, which David held in his hands, and David very well knew that, David still follows each of these titles in verses 7-9 through with, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord. And he's making it painfully obvious that the words of Scripture, though written by man, they have God as their ultimate author. But secondly, Scripture shares in some of the very attributes of God. This isn't to say that Scripture is divine, but it does reflect God's own character. The law of the Lord is perfect because God is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure, that is reliable and unchanging, and that is because God is reliable and unchanging. The precepts of the Lord are right, that is just and equitable because God is so. Deuteronomy 32, we read the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. And I could go on, but to suffice it to say that the Scriptures are pure, clean, and true. They're without blemish because God is without blemish. 1 John 1, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So God is the author of Scripture. Scripture shares in the attributes of God. And thirdly, Scripture is said to accomplish what only God can accomplish. We read here that Scripture revives the soul. It makes the simple wise. It causes our hearts to rejoice, enlightens our eyes, and endures forever. But it's worth our asking, how do simple words on a page, how does pen and ink revive our souls? And Psalm 23, the same David who authored this psalm, he writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then in verse 3, He revives my soul. And it's the same Hebrew word there. The Lord is the one who revives our souls. And so when we put these two halves together, on the one hand, the law is perfect, reviving the soul. And on the other hand, God alone revives the soul. We get this Simple equation. God revives our souls through His Word. And the simple point here, more generally, is that God always works through His Word. As we read Scripture, we come across statements such as these. Hebrews 11, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Hebrews 1, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. First Peter 1, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And Jesus' prayer in John 17 is especially 
interesting. He prays to his father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Christ asks the father to do something. Father, sanctify them. But then he specifies the means by which he expects the father to do it. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus expects and asks God to work through his word. And really, the list goes on and on. In Psalm 147 and and in other various places throughout the word, we see that God even commands the weather by his word. And so one theologian, John Frame, he put it rather simply. He writes, whatever God does, he does by his word. Whatever God does, the Word does. And this is what we see here in Psalm 19. The reason the Word of God revives the soul, makes us wise, and so on, is because God is present with His Word, working in and through it. And if it were not so, the Word would remain absolutely powerless. And so here's the point. Wherever you encounter the Word of God, you encounter God Himself speaking. God speaks today through the scriptures. Now briefly, I want to address an objection to this second point. And that is, if God is present and speaking through the scriptures, then why doesn't it always feel that way? Why isn't it more obvious to us? Because it sure doesn't seem like he always is. And what we see in scripture is that God's word comes to us in a variety of forms. On the one hand, we have the Lord at Mount Sinai, speaking to Moses in thunder. And the people were afraid and they actually said, do not let God speak to us lest we die. And then on the other hand, when the Son of God Himself humbles Himself and takes on human flesh and walks the earth as the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, and goes around preaching the good news, most of the time, people are entirely unaware that it is God Himself who is speaking to them. One of Jesus' names is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. I said that the painter can't enter his own canvas. And I wasn't entirely right, was I? Somehow by the mystery of God's power, the Word became flesh. Jesus was the very fullness of the revelation of God, and yet people refused him and turned away because of the hard things that he had to say. At one point, Jesus asks his disciples, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They're speaking to the one who is life himself. And Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, we have believed. We only perceive who God is and we only perceive God's Word for what it is through faith. And it may not always feel to us that God is present, but it's something that we perceive by faith, that God accompanies His Word. And I would add that just as Jesus had hard sayings, Scripture isn't always crystal clear. The Apostle Peter said that there are some things in Paul's letters that are difficult to understand. So we have to study, we have to endeavor, and we have to labor to understand God's Word rightly. 
So just because God speaks through the Scriptures does not mean that it will always feel tangible. We don't always sense His power and presence. Nor is the meaning of God's Word always obvious to us. But nevertheless, when Scripture is opened, God is present. Now there's a few takeaways for us from this second point. Firstly, understand. Understand that through the Scriptures, you are in fact countering God Himself speaking personally to each one of you. Listen to what Herman Bothink says. He was a 19th century theologian uh, who's still read quite a bit today. This is what he writes. He says, Holy Scripture is the eternally ongoing speech of God to us. In it, God daily comes to His people. In it, He speaks to His people not from afar, but from nearby. In it, He reveals Himself from day to day to believers in the fullness of His truth and grace. Scripture does not just tie us to the past. It binds us to the living Lord in the heavens. It is the living voice of God. In Scripture, then, it's not as if we view God through a telescope. He's way out there and and we're trying to access Him and see Him. But it's more as if Scripture is God's teleportation device whereby He comes to us time and time again, faithfully and without fail. And of course, this doesn't mean that we're always sensitive to His voice. And so this is why the second thing we need to do is to pray. Pray for the Spirit's grace that the Word might penetrate your heart and take root and to bear fruit. In Ephesians 6, we're told to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Spirit's tool in our lives is the Word. And so we ought to ask that as God speaks, the Spirit would give us strength to receive. It's a supernatural endeavor to read the Bible with faith. And so we need to pray. Lastly, meditate on Scripture. Meditate. I think a lot of times we don't receive the full value of God's Word because we fail to actually take God's Word with us. We open it in the morning and perhaps we spend five minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is that you spend in the Word. Perhaps you chew on one verse. But then we so easily go on our day and and we forget that. We don't let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. But if we meditate on the Word, if we sift through it in our minds, if we chew on it, and if we try and memorize it, believe me, you will see that Word take effect in your life. That is how the Word works. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Meditate on it. And here as we're responding, or talking about, excuse me, responding to God's Word, This brings us to the third point this morning, which is this. The Scriptures lead us to Jesus. The Scriptures lead us to Jesus. As David considers the perfection and purity and righteousness of God's law, which again are really just reflections of God's righteousness, The only thing he can think to do is to seek God's mercy. And he asked for two things. First, he asked for forgiveness and cleansing. He writes in 
verse 12, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. That is willful sins, sins we knowingly commit. Let them not have dominion over me. David asks that God would forgive him of his sins, the sins that he knows about as well as the sins that he doesn't know about. See, we don't know all of the layers of our own sin. It's like one great onion. You can peel back a layer, but still the flesh resides and we're stuck in these bodies of sin. And so we don't know the layers of all our imperfection. And David asks for strength as we ought to as well. And then he writes, Then... I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. What's clear here is that David sees himself as an objectively guilty man. Yet as a man who, apart from God's grace, uh, as a man who, apart from God's grace and protection, he's going to do wrong. He knows that. Yet somehow he is also a man who could be counted innocent by God's free pardon. As David read the law, he observed, as Paul tells us, that the wages of sin is death. The animal sacrifices, no doubt, are what had made this clear. Where there was sin, blood was required. Yet David, by the Spirit, still he knew that the blood of animals was not enough. He writes, "...for for you will not delight, this is elsewhere." For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so the animals were only pointing forward. The book of Hebrews says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Man's sin requires man's blood. And it is for that reason that Christ came. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus approaching, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is truth incarnate. He is the perfect man. He is the perfect expression of God's law and of God's righteousness. And not only that, but he actually lived a life of keeping the statutes of God's law perfectly at every point. And so where we failed like David, Jesus is perfect. And he said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And that means to abide by everything it says, to live the perfect life. And the reason he did this is so that he might be our redeemer. Christ's perfect obedience meant that he wouldn't have to suffer for his own sins, but rather he could suffer for the sins of the unrighteous. And so the Apostle Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. David, somehow by God's Spirit, looked forward to all this, and he knew he couldn't find acceptance, or he knew he could, excuse me, he could find acceptance even before a holy and righteous God. And so how much more us who are on this side of the cross and take hold of the ultimate Lamb of God. And so he prayed, and so we pray with him, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, as we behold the glory of God in creation, 
And as we come to Scripture and see more fully the perfection and goodness of God, we don't despair. Because here we also see the grace of God. Even as we continue to stumble and falter in many ways, we have hope. And we rejoice that in Jesus we have a Redeemer. And that's where I want us to end. Ultimately, as God comes to us and speaks to us through Scripture, what He means to deliver to us is the free offer of salvation in His Son. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, because they totally missed what Scripture had made evident. He said to them, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. To read Scripture and to refuse to look to Jesus is to miss the whole purpose of the Bible. The Scriptures bear witness about Jesus. And so more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Can we say that? Have we tasted in the goodness of God in and through His Word as we behold in it the glory of Christ? Brothers and sisters, God is not far off. He is not a God who desires to remain hidden. And we don't have to twist His arm in order to meet with Him or to hear from Him. But His offer to come to us in and through His Word and to meet Him there and to meet the Savior That offer is a perpetual offer that is always on the table. And in that we get to rejoice. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank You. God, that we are not alone in this world searching and grasping for You. Hoping against hope that You might speak, that You might reveal Yourself, that You might give Yourself to us, Lord. No, rather, Lord, we trust that You indeed have come, that You are a God who seeks to make Himself known, that has put Yourself on display and has ultimately done so in the Word made flesh. Lord, help us to hide ourselves in Him, to trust in Him, to look to Him, God, give us hearts to do so continually through Your Word and to know, Holy Spirit, that indeed You you are there present with Your Word to change us, to transform us, to give us comfort and hope, to give us freedom and liberation, and to give us newness of life. Lord, help us to be a people who always take hold of this wonderful offer of hearing You speak. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.